possible. So as you guys are here tonight, even though those of you that I can't see behind the Christmas tree, glad to have you guys with us. Um, we're going to be in Isaiah 7 starting tonight, if you want to make your way there. I, uh, so yeah, I grew up almost my entire life in the same house. Um, from the time I was about three years old, we moved into this um, little house um, over on 310 Kingsway in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and, and I lived there all the way until my senior year of high school. And then my senior year, we finally, my parents have been talking about trying to do this forever. They tried. It kind of kept falling through. We were finally able to sell our house and, and build kind of another house, which is the family, or which is the house that my, my parents still live in today. And so this happened my senior year. The, the problem was we built our, uh, we sold our old house before our new house was built, um, which meant we had four months in which we didn't actually have a home to live in. And so this family from our church let us go stay out of this extra house that they had um, just on the edge of town. And uh, it was just kind of outside of town, actually, which was really great. It was out in this kind of wooded area, and it was nice and sweet, but it was also a little bit creepy. Um, and we called it the compound. And uh, we, would, we would go out, and, and it was in this, like I said, you'd go out of town, and it was kind of this... Uh, heavily, pretty heavily wooded area as you start to get outside of town and then you would come to this spot in the middle of the woods um, where there was a gate and you would go through that and then you would um, drive down this probably quarter mile, a little bit more driveway that was even more heavily kind of wooded area. And, and honestly, it was really nice during the day. It was, it was pretty during the day. There was, we were near this park um, called Hopewell Park in Muskogee, um, which is kind of known for crazy things happening at it, so that was a little bit eerie, but um, other than that, during the day, it was pretty nice, but at nighttime, um, at nighttime, it could creep you out a little bit, and, and mostly just a guy like me who kind of grew up in town, I never realized how dark it could be when you're outside of city limits. Um, when, you, when you grow up in a city, you're just you step outside and you think it's dark at night, but there's always porch lights and there's always street lights and there's always signs and there's all these things that are kind of lit up around town and you never know how dark it can really get until you move away from all of that. And uh, there was kind of a rule that basically the, the last person to come in for the night had to, when you got to that gate there at the top of the driveway, you had to get out and go back and lock the gate up once you drove in because the family also had this giant shed that they kept a lot of equipment on that they didn't want stolen. And so you always had to go in and lock that. And I hated being the last person to drive in um, for the night because I'd you know, drive through and then have to, to get out of my car and, and go and lock this up with nothing but the dim red light of my, of my 87 Chevette uh, tail lights and, and also the way my Chevette worked like it was a manual but the emergency brake didn't work so I couldn't like put it in neutral and pull the brake on like I just had to kill the car in order to get out and so I always had this nightmare that um, that my car wasn't going to start back up and I was going to have to just haul it through the woods. And uh, I literally, I made that plan in my mind. If my car does not start, I'm running full speed 
and either I'm going to get there or I'm, I'm going to run into a tree and kill myself, and that's okay too. Because um, I did not want to be out there in the middle of the dark woods. And, and I remember I would always try and find, like, as if I knew I was going to be the last one, as I was pulling up, I'd always try to find, like, the cheesiest, bubbliest song I could have on the radio and just crank it. And so I would often be locking up to Britney Spears or something like that. I remember one time I found Kung Fu Fighting on the radio and turned that up as loud as I could because uh, I figured like in horror movies, nobody ever gets axe murdered to Kung Fu Fighting, right? And so as long as Kung Fu Fighting is blaring, then I'm probably safe. Um, but I would, I would do that and I would... I, Fortunately, my car always started, so I was always able to make it in, but it was always this really freaky 30 seconds trying to do that with my hands shaking, shoving the lock, you know. And, and my, we would also do this thing on some nights when, uh, especially if the moon wasn't out, um, where as we were driving, my brothers and I, like, we would always stop at some point on that driveway in the middle of the woods and just kill the lights just to see how dark it would get. And, and literally, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, and we would see how long we could sit there in the dark before one of us would go, okay, turn it on, turn it on. Um, and one time we did this and my cousins were in town and we, we, drove, uh, we were going up, we were going into town and so we wanted to show them we killed the lights out there and I think there were six of us, either five or six of us and, and all of us high schoolers or junior high or whatever, we kill the lights for a second, we sit there for a little bit and then someone's like, all right, turn it on, you know, and we turn it on and literally like I turn it on and a split second later this deer uh, jumps out into the road in front of us <laughs> And a car full of high school boys uh, screamed like little girls, every one of us. Um, and, and, and it was just, there was this really weird, again, and, and maybe that's not true for everybody, but for me, being out there, this city boy as I am, could get so scared out there in the middle of the dark. The darkness is actually kind of a, a weird thing. Uh, when you are a little kid, it's it's really kind of the first thing you learn to be afraid of. Um, and, and I say learn, it's almost like nobody's even got to teach you. There's just something about the darkness when you're a kid um, that's just creepy. And, and the truth is, um, a lot of us never fully, fully grow out of that. Like, we can sleep in our dark room, but to be alone in some dark place that we don't know, there's something that's just kind of scary about that. And and, and that's always in us a little bit, so much so that darkness has become kind of a major metaphor for, um, for evil or for wickedness or for things that are scary or things that are depressing. We say things like, I'm in a dark place right now, meaning that I'm not well, I'm, I'm sick or I'm emotionally unstable or I'm, I'm unable to cope with things. Life feels really dark. I I'm, I'm, I'm really feel like I'm groping through the darkness. We use these kinds of terms because there's something about darkness that kind of goes to the core of who we are, um, of just being um, not the way things are supposed to be. I want to tell you tonight a story about a, a nation plunged into darkness for hundreds of years. And, and, well, the story doesn't start here, but we'll start here. Um, the year is 735 B.C. 735 B.C., and there is this young new king over the kingdom of Judah. Um, when he takes over, he's about you guys' age. He's 20 years old. Um, his name is King Ahaz. And, and I say he's king over the king of Judah. That's because 200 years earlier, just after Solomon ruled over the nation, uh, Israel and Judah or Judea split into these two kingdoms. They just call them the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
And, uh, and so the, the northern kingdom becomes these upper ten tribes, and then the bottom kingdom becomes Judea, Benjamin, and the Levites kind of mixed in there together. Um, and so these, these tribes go up into the north, these ones go into the south, and, and for 200 years they have been split apart, but really there has not been much of a shake-up politically as far as the changing of this landscape um, for the last two centuries up to this point. Ahaz takes over this area, and, and also I should tell you this, right around the time that the kingdom split, um, 931 BC, I believe, is the time. Right around the time that uh, these kingdoms split, this nation up here, over to the northeast, Assyria, begins to grow, starts to ascend to power, and it will, and it will continue to grow in its power and in its influence and in its strength for the next couple centuries until it really reaches its peak right here at this time. It's at kind of the pinnacle of its power, and for centuries after, nations will copy the way Assyria went about its military strategies and its political power and its gains, the way it worked through that, because it, it does something that people have not seen before in the way that it is able to grow and it is able to conquer. Um, because it's 735, it's starting to reach the peak, and in the next 50 years, it's going to sweep all the way down through here, even into Egypt, to start taking over. For the next 50 years, it'll start taking over this whole region. And because these countries see it coming, they decide that they want to get together and form an alliance. The, the two main ones are Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria, this kingdom just above it. They decide they want to form an alliance to fight against Israel. From everything we can tell, they want Judea to be a part of this alliance. But Judea has refused so far. And so the king of Israel and the king of Syria choose um, to sweep down into Judea to attack it and try and force them um, to be a part of this. You should know this, actually, that after this split, after Solomon's reign, and, and it split into these two kingdoms, Jeroboam, Solomon's son, was king of Judea, and then Rehoboam started a kingdom up north with Israel. Israel only went downhill from there, continued to get worse. Every king from Rehoboam on was evil and wicked. And they plunged themselves further and further into idolatry and immorality and injustice. Judea was not that different. Judea would have every now and then a good king come and try to restore and bring Judea back to what it was supposed to be, worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. But by and large, it followed after Israel in its own kind of rebellion and tailing around, um, yeah, tailing off in those things. Um, so Israel and Syria, they come down to Judea and they want to try and force Judea to come and join them. This is what it says in uh, Isaiah 7, 1 through 2. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Sorry, I keep saying Judea. That's what it's later called. Judah is what it's called at this time after the tribe of Judah. Sorry about that. Judah. Um, Isaiah 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So they come to Judea, and they come specifically to Judah, I keep saying it, to Judah, and they specifically keep coming to, or they specifically come to attack Jerusalem, which is where the kingdom is based. Now we know that they actually already took a section of Judah out 
Um, they've taken part of it from it, and this country Edom comes in from the east and starts to fill up that space as well. Now they're trying to get to Jerusalem, and their goal is to depose Ahaz and put a new king up, one who will go with them in their alliance against, uh, against Assyria at that time. And so uh, they, they come to him, they're trying to attack it, and now Ahaz has a choice. And his choice is he can either give in and join these guys, or he can hold out and send word that he wants to be with these guys, with Assyria, the powerhouse. Um, and, and so this is, the, this is the debate that he has going in his house, and this is kind of the fear. It says, they come to attack against it, and verse 2, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's another word used for Israel, because that was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. Um, so Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They're nervous, they're afraid, they're terrified because they've already taken part of the, uh, our country and now they're teaming up to try and take us. And so he's got to choose. Am I going to line up with these or am I going to line up with Assyria? But then the prophet Isaiah gets sent by God and he comes and he tells Ahaz that actually there's, there's a third choice that you haven't considered yet. He says that actually you have the opportunity to, to not line up with Syria and Israel to not go to Assyria for help, because by the way, as soon as you try to um, establish yourself in league or, or as a team with a major powerhouse like Assyria, that means also accepting Assyrian ways. That means worshiping Assyrian gods. That means kind of blending in with their culture to some degree, if they're going to kind of be over you, that you've got to take in part of their religion as well. And so he says, you don't have to do that either. He says, actually, your third option is this, Trust God. Trust Yahweh that He's going to take care of you. These two countries look powerful now. They cannot do anything to you with God in control. Um, so do not fear. Do not be afraid of those things and wait patiently for the Lord. Um, in fact, Yahweh even comes to him through Isaiah, says to Ahaz, listen, if you're worried about this, ask me for a sign. Any sign you want. He says, as high as the heavens above or as deep as Sheol, the place of death below, ask me for a sign and I'll give it to you to prove that I will take care of you. And Ahaz says, essentially, no thanks. I don't need a sign. I think I've kind of already made up my mind. And, and we know, actually, if you read 1 Kings 16, we know what decision he made. He sends a letter to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. He sends a letter to him and asks for help. Not only does he do that, he calls himself um, your servant and your vassal. That is, you can rule us now if you'll come help. Not only does he do that, he goes to the temple of Yahweh and removes a lot of the money, the treasure from it, and sends that off to Assyria as kind of a means for asking for help. And so he's made up his mind. He's going to trust not God, and he's not going to trust uh, Syria or Israel. Instead, he's going to trust Assyria. And, and when he tells this to Isaiah, Isaiah responds with this. Um, verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13, Isaiah says, And he said, Hear then, O house of David, that is, Kings of Judah, Ahaz is who he's talking about. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, if you're not going to ask for a sign, I've got a sign for you. 
I'll give it to you. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now you, you need to know real quick, it's, this gets a little confusing. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he says, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign he's going to give him is Christmas. How, do, how does that fit into this play here? That's, that's not actually where I, uh, Isaiah is going yet. Um, what we just read is a prophecy that, that this actually happens a lot in the Old Testament. has one meaning, but double significance. One meaning. And the meaning is this. God is with His people. God is with us. That meaning will translate over time, but it has two different significances. In other words, that meaning, God is with us, is going to play out in a small form here in the life of Ahaz, and it's going to play out in a really developed big form later in the future. The small form is, what he's saying is, the virgin will be with child. What he more than likely means in this kind of small significance, this early prediction, is that a woman who is not yet married yet will soon be married and have a child. And that child, we will name him Emmanuel, Isaiah says. Many think that this is a woman that Isaiah is going to marry. Um, we will name him Emmanuel. And he, he goes on to say this, that the before, um, before the boy is old enough to know the difference between the right and the wrong. Now, later Jewish tradition puts that age at 12. He doesn't say what age it is here, but later Jewish tradition said that the age when a boy is able to know between right and wrong, old enough to be held accountable for his actions, is the age of 12. And that actually lines up really well with this. More than likely, that's exactly what Isaiah has in mind. And the reason why is because, remember, I told you this is 735 B.C. In 12 years, Assyria will come in and conquer both Syria and Israel. So he says, before the boy is 12 years old, both of the kings that you fear will come to nothing. And so actually in 12 years, not only will Israel be conquered, but all of her people will be deported and taken out to Assyria as Assyria moves new people in to, to reign over this land. So this is, actually sounds like pretty good news right off the bat. This is, what, this is what Ahaz is hoping for. This is why he's partnering up with Assyria, because he knows that they're more powerful. That's what I want is for Assyria to sweep in here and conquer these two nations. That's good news that you're telling me. Isaiah, but then Isaiah continues in verse 17, and Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. That is this king that you're putting all your hope in, that you're putting all your trust in. He, yes, he's going to come down and take over these two countries, but he's not going to stop there. And he's going to make his way down into your land as well. And he's going to begin to take over sections of that. Um, and, and actually what we see is, is that this very thing does take place um, in Judah. That, that as Judah first leans on Assyria, later Ahaz's son Hezekiah will be king. And it's during that reign, 34 years later, 701 B.C., that actually Assyria comes in and begins to take over all the hill country of Judea. It says it takes over all the fortified cities of Judah as well, and then comes up to Jerusalem. And, and in that time, actually, Hezekiah is not like his father Ahaz. Hezekiah actually tries to do what is right, um, tries to follow God, and he cries out to God in that time, and, and the Lord delivers Jerusalem from the king of Assyria. 
um, but not before the rest of Jew Judah is taken over by Assyria. And from there we actually see that um, after Hezekiah, the nation will continue to decrease and will continue to run after false gods and will continue to seek injustice and will continue to oppress the poor and will continue to move themselves further and further into immorality and they will plunge themselves into the same darkness that the northern kingdom faced. They will plunge themselves into the same ruin when the very thing they sought to save them becomes their undoing. Do you know that story? Not this specific story. I mean, do you know that story? The, the story of a person who, when faced between the choice between God and something else, something that they're going to trust over him, something that they trust to take care of them, something that they trust to satisfy them, something that they trust to be enough for them, and they put all their chips over on this side, and they end up finding out that the very thing that they put their hope in is the thing that comes to be their undoing. Surely you know that story. I think we've all lived it. I've lived that story. Knowing, knowing that I've got the choice between my maker and something else and instead putting all of my trust in this other thing and so often it is that thing that comes back to bite me. Um, Ecclesiastes we've studied for the last several weeks actually kind of shows us this over and over again. What happens when a person trusts money to be their security instead of God? What they end up finding is their pursuit of money never satisfies, never gives them security, often ends up undoing them. When a person seeks pleasure in worldly things rather than in God themselves, they find they cannot get enough. Often that becomes the cause of some of their worst behavior and the worst choices that they've ever made in their life. When a person runs after success, when any time we choose, like Ahaz, to say, God calls me to trust him, but I'm going to trust this instead, we find that we are undone by that very thing that we put our hope in. This is not um, just the story of me or of you. This is not just the story of Judah. This is actually the story of humanity. Um, the story of humanity is this. For every single person who has ever lived, the story is this, that you and I, we were made by God for a purpose. As we were made to know Him, we were made to be in relationship with Him, we were made to obey Him and to walk in His ways, and yet every single person has chosen otherwise. The whole world has chosen otherwise. We have chosen to go after other things. Isaiah will actually say it this way in a future prophecy, in, in a more famous chapter. He'll say this, that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone after his own way. We chase after what we want instead of the God who made us to chase him. And this is the cause of every bit of darkness that you will ever see in the world. This is at the root of all uh, hatred in the world. This is at the root of all frustration. This is at the root of all racism and injustice and abuse and oppression. Is a people um, filling this planet who says, I do not want what my maker desires for me. I want what I want. And it's like a fish trying to live outside of water or a plant who's trying to survive and grow without any roots tucked in the ground. You can't live that way. We were not made to live outside of God and His purpose. 
Try as we may, things are only going to die. Things are only going to go dark that way. God's people learned this the hard way as their sin led them into greater and greater darkness. As I said, in the year 722, the tribes of Israel are conquered and they are exiled into Assyria and other parts of the Assyrian Empire. Those ten tribes are actually lost um, to humanity. Um, or, or those two tribes are kind of lost in history, and we don't end up seeing them again. In 586, so Judah, they last about 150 years longer. In 586, Judah actually gets taken over by the new world power at that time, Babylon, who comes in and overruns them and destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple, the place where they meet their God. And everything that Isaiah warned of in Isaiah 7, in chapter 8, everything he warned about that the thing that you're chasing is going to come and consume you all came true. What we'll find is that, as I said, the northern kingdom never comes back. Um, and then Judah eventually gets to go back, some of them. The Bible calls it the remnant, this small people that gets to go back into Judah. And they try to rebuild their walls, and they do. And they try to rebuild their temple, and they do, but it pales in comparison to what they once had. And this little mini-revival that they try to get going, in which they try to get their focus back on Yahweh again and do the right thing, it never really comes into full fruition. And this, this land, this nation, by their own wickedness, find themselves pushed into darkness until the year about 400. The God who has been speaking to them for hundreds of years through the, through the prophets goes silent. They don't hear from him anymore. And all they know is the quietness of a God they once worshipped and that they hope will return to them. And all they know is the darkness that they've put themselves into. Everything Isaiah said was going to happen, happened. Fortunately, it wasn't all that he said would happen. Right after chapters 7 and 8, he makes this really remarkable prophecy. Now, we already talked about this coming of Emmanuel, which will have a larger fulfillment that you all know about. But then there's this other prophecy that takes place in chapter 9. And what he says is that in the very place where the darkness started, he's going to name these two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulon, which were right up here in the corners of Israel. And this is where Assyria entered in to take over this land. He says, right where the darkness started for my people is going to be the place where the light comes in, where hope comes to my people. They would also end up calling this region of Naphtali and Zebulun, Galilee. He says, right in that place, hope will come for my people. And the nations of Israel and the, and the people of Judah would cling to this promise, hoping that one day, after years and years of silence, one day it would take place. So as we jump into a time of listening and singing, I want you to hear that prophecy read over you now. Let's read from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Now the light is shining on them. You have given them great joy, Lord. You have given them 
You've made them happy. You rejoice in what you have done, as the people rejoice in what they when when they harvest grapes, or when they divide captured wealth. For you have broken the yoke that burdened them and the rod that beat their shoulders. You have defeated the nation that oppressed and exploited your people. Just as you have defeated the army of Midian long ago, the boots of the invading army and their blood-stained clothing will be destroyed by fire. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and he will be our, our ruler. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His royal power will continue to grow. His kingdom will always be at peace. He will rule as David's successor, basing his power on right and justice. From now until the end of time, the Lord Almighty is determined to do all of this.